Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. If they don't, then you need to start there. So encourage them to get a better idea, a better handle on who that customer is, what's really driving the decisions of that group of people, and then can we optimize around that? Dig into, well, what does like this mean? We don't want to do exactly that, right? Well, no, of course not, not, not exactly that. Um, then you say, great, so what needs to be similar, right? What's our points of parity? And then now that we've got that, all right, well, here's the areas where we can be different and really set ourselves apart. Is it because it's not on the top shelf? It's now on the, you know, the decking behind where they're serving the, the, the whiskey. What are those subconscious reasons that people are actually choosing that product? So Ryan, I, I really love it when our listeners reach out over LinkedIn or email and have a chat with us. So if you're one of our listeners and you, you want to link up with us, then feel free to just ping us. I'm obviously on LinkedIn and um, you can contact us at contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. Uh, the reason I say this to you, because uh, Fernando did that uh, and I was chatting to him over LinkedIn, in fact, and he was just, we were just back and forth about uh, some of the challenges that he he had. We ended up going, hey, this is going to be a great discussion for a, a pickle. I asked Fernando if it was uh, okay for me to use this for the I'm in a pickle slot, which is what we're going to do today. Perfect. So let me read you what Fernando wrote. He says, regarding I'm in a pickle, uh, one of the obstacles that I have been long struggling with my clients is distinction. I work on branding and focusing on packaging for fast-moving consumer goods and CBG brands. I'm not, I'm not sure what CBPG uh, brands CBG are. CBG is consumer packaged goods. So the oh, stuff thank you get in the grocery store. Good, there you go. And time and again, clients see the competition and somehow want to look like them uh, to try to target the same audience, even in a similar way. I wrote an article a while back, uh, which I never published, called The Rejection Syndrome. I relate it on one hand to our primate uh, need to be accepted by the pack in order to have better choice of survival. And on the other hand, with the security it gives us when we know it works for somebody else, and which is more to do with social proofing. So his question is really around uh, how does he make the packaging more distinctive and why are his clients why are his clients sort of moving towards going well look, look what they do we should do that and you yeah. know they're attacking this audience and therefore we should attack that audience and you know what's the psychology underneath that so if you were um giving fernando some advice ryan what would you say so first of all, like I, I love this. I'm in a pickle segment. I'm, I'm glad that uh, we do it. I love interacting with our listeners and, and the problems that we get in. Most of the problems that we get are, are very practical. People have very specific questions that they want solved, which is great. 
But Fernando, like, this was a great question. There's because I can answer this with like ten different theories. So <laughs> I'm I'm always like trying to pull us in the direction. This is Ryan's of heaven. <laughs> yes. In fact, it was me faking a Spanish accent with you, Colin, when when Fernando was talking. <laughs> this is such a great theory-rich question. And in fact, Fernando, you, you should go and publish that article somewhere. Um, I'd be interested in reading it. Okay. Um, so does this mean that this episode's now going to be four hours? Maybe. And people will love it. <laughs> it may just be me and Fernando who listen to the whole thing. But I mean, you know, there's so much going on here, theoretically. So we're going to brush quickly past a number of them so that we can focus a little bit. But you know, there, there's a, a big issue of risk aversion that happens in business where we're making such high stakes decisions that we naturally become very risk averse and and we we want to be cautious and so you see this hurting behavior where one brand does something and it's successful or even if it just looks like it might be successful then you got all these other brands kind of moving in to try to claim the same space also so that they can be part of that success or block against their success there's this natural tendency to compete. A lot of brands, I think, fall into this trap of thinking that they can only win by defeating their competitors, as opposed to winning by better serving their customers. Yeah. Which is what leads to this thing that Fernando identified where they want to start targeting the same customer as their competitors. Like, why? Why would you? Like, that's the worst thing to do. You want to identify your own set of customers who you understand better and that you can deliver value to, as opposed to saying, well, if they're successful going after this group of people, we should go up to the same group of people. Even in an adjacent space, or there could be a group of customers that they don't even know about. Exactly. Yeah, there, there may be a group of people out there. And in fact, I think in many markets, it's true. A group of people who's not being served at all, while people pile in on trying to serve the same group of people better than the competition. So, uh, so much there and, and social proofing is absolutely a part of it too. I wanna narrow in though, cause we don't apparently have four hours. Thank you, Colin. <laughs> and, and talk about uh, one part of it, which was this idea that how does distinctiveness matter? How do customers value distinctiveness? How do businesses value distinctiveness? I think from a business standpoint, because of this risk aversion, there's a strong belief in kind of best practices or in doing what has already been proven to be successful. And you and I have talked about this on a number of podcast episodes before, Colin. We have. We'll put a link in the show notes to where we talked about best practice. We did a whole uh, whole podcast on that. That's right. Yeah. So, and, and you know, the, the headline overview, best practices are inherently reductive. All right. If everybody does best practices, everybody starts to do the same thing. And another yeah. one of our episodes where we touched on this was the interview with uh, Rory Sutherland. He pointed out that the only way to compete successfully long-term is to not do what everyone else is doing. You have to make yourself distinctive. We'll have links to both of those, recommend those to people. From the customer standpoint, there's this tension that all of us have between wanting to be a part of the group and wanting to conform and then wanting to set ourselves apart from the group and wanting to be distinctive. Both of those things are valid and both of those things are true and they both exist within us at the same time. And that creates this inherent tension within us that is psychologically very interesting um, and drives a lot of our behavior. 
This is unusual, mate. It feels like I'm going to try to struggle to get a word in edgeways this episode. Yeah, well, um, we, we, seem, we seem to have different <laughs> domains, don't we, Colin? <laughs> for certain things, we can't stop you with a brick wall. And then for other topics, like you can't shut me up for a million dollars. No, this is great. Yeah. Go so ahead. Let me, let me, let me give you... I'll give you 15 seconds. Go ahead. <laughs> I've only got four hours today, Colin. We've got to get this in. <laughs> So let me try to give you an example of that because as you were saying it, it was making me making me think, which yeah. is which is good. I recently bought a new car. Okay, my wife Lorraine said to me the other day. She said, "Why did you buy the one?" Uh, so most of the cars have got a, a, a silver grill on the front, and I bought the one that had got a, a special blacked package. Okay, and, and the grill is black. And she said, why did you buy the one with black? And I said, because it's different. Yeah. And I thought, that's interesting. I could have gone to another extreme and bought a, a car that nobody else has ever bought before. That would have been different. But it, it was like I wanted to be different, but the same. And is yeah. that what you're talking about here? That's exactly what I'm talking about, right? You had both of these desires, right? You you do want to conform to a certain extent. It, humans are social creatures. We need to be parts of tribes. I mean, you know, just at, at its most basic, human beings do not survive well in the wild on their own. We tend to need other people in order for our species to survive. And so we've, we've had these desires evolve into us where we want to be part of groups. And that requires conforming and adhering to the rules of the group. So we have that desire, you know, you didn't want to, um, you know, go completely off the rails and, you know, start riding a horse instead of driving a car. But simultaneously, we want to distinguish ourselves. So we want to be different from the group in certain ways. So psychologists have developed a theory to reconcile those distinct drives. Um, that's known as optimal distinctiveness theory. Right. And so the idea is that, there's these two poles at opposite ends, one of which is where we conform completely and we're just a, a faceless drone um, that's a cog in a machine and, and there's nothing unique about us. The other is being extremely distinctive where we are absolutely unique and there's nobody else like us and, and we don't connect with other people. Both of those extremes are not good. And so what we do instead is we try to achieve some optimal balance between the two. Right. So a lot of times what you'll find then is that people will find a tribe that they connect with, a group of people, and then that tribe will kind of be set apart. But then within the tribe, there will be these finer distinctions. So um, think back to, to high school, um, and there must have been like weird cliques or groups within your high school. Maybe your, your high school had uh, a group of, of goths or metalheads, right? People who wore black lipstick and black eyeliner and, and all black clothing and metal studs in their belts, they were distinct, right? They were distinct from society. You, you could pick them out in a crowd. But within the group, there was actually a fairly high degree of conformity, right? So they, they had rules about how they were supposed to dress within that small society, and they tended to adhere to that. All of us do this to a greater or lesser extent. So if we're in a group that conforms so if we're an accountant, then we're part of that tribe. But that tribe is pretty mainstream. And so you may find that within that tribe, within accountants, 
the members will distinguish each other from each other more. So certain accountants, you know, it might be more important for them to express what their hobbies are or dress in a slightly different way. Because again, now their their tribe is more conformist. And so they need to distinguish themselves within that tribe. Whereas if you've got a tribe that's very non-conformist, then within the tribe, there might need to be more conformity. So in, in either case, we're trying to balance these two and find an optimal place in between. Does that make sense? It does. It, I tell you what, it's making me think of Antiques Roadshow. Interesting. Let me try and draw the connection. One of the things that I've noticed with the, uh, I, I presume you've seen the Antiques Roadshow. Okay? Sure. So this is a, a TV show where, where people bring in old heirlooms and things and have them priced. They, it's very common in England and here in the States. And they bring in their heirlooms. And But the, the people that tend to appraise the items... <laughs> Sure. Yeah, seventy percent yeah. of them dressed in the most strangest way. Yeah, or quite outlandish. They are trying to be distinct. You know, now you could argue, well, they're on TV, so they're they're doing it for that reasons. I don't necessarily think that's the the, the case. But they're trying to they're trying to stand out from everybody, aren't they? I mean, that's so interesting, isn't it? And so, optimal distinctiveness theory would say that um, there's going to be countermanding ways in which they can form in order to balance that. And so it may be that each of these appraisers is dressed in kind of an outlandish way, but within the appraiser community, there are rules and, and forms of expression which are very conformist. And so amongst the appraisers themselves, they might have very strong taboos about what can be done and not be done, even if to the outside world. I mean, the, the appraisers might be kind of the 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 old fusty version of of these teenage goths it, it makes me wonder whether the whether the norm and the rule is you have to dress in an outlandish way yeah and therefore if i want to be distinctive i'm just going to wear a boring suit and be a, a an appraiser you i mean you will see that too right um where people can can kind of be distinct from their group by going more conformist there's a fashion movement that was popular a few years ago among a very niche population, I think mostly in Brooklyn, New York, and it was called normcore. There's hardcore, um, yeah. which expresses something. This was like normcore, where it was like hardcore normalcy. And so you had all of these super hip, cool, like early 20s fashionistas dressing like middle-aged men and women from the suburbs of Wisconsin. Right. And it was exactly what you're saying. Like they were kind of becoming distinct because within those communities – that was a distinctive way of dressing, right? If everybody around you is dressing crazy, then maybe you become nonconformist by dressing like your father. Sure. Interesting. We wanted to thank everybody for listening. You are great and the reason we do this. We're really pleased that we now have over 200 episodes. We've seen the podcast grow and grow, and now, according to Buzzsprout, it is in the top 5% of all podcasts globally. Thank you. That is truly amazing and not possible without you. But we have one request of you. Can you please tell a friend, a neighbor, or even someone you hate? It would be really good to get more listeners, and it encourages Ryan and I to continue to produce the show. So please, just tell a friend.
Let me tie this back to Fernando's question. Yes. That's kind of the broad theoretical framework. And again, thank you, Fernando. Man, great, great theory-based <laughs> question. What, what I suspect a lot of your clients are struggling with is, again, this balance between distinctiveness and conformity. For a lot of product categories, there's there are kind of a set of unwritten rules about what is appropriate for that category, right? So cereal all comes in boxes that are kind of the same shape and size. Why? There may be some technical reasons for it, but you could package those things in a very different way. And yet the entire category is settled on this. You know, toothpaste, same thing. Like there are other means of delivering and and storing and shipping toothpaste than tubes. And yet that's what the entire category has settled on. So like there there are these kind of rules often unwritten and, and generally understood about how these things should be designed. There's use to that. That helps to define the category. People can kind of have an easy entry point to understanding what's there. But the danger is that when there's too much conformity, it makes the options indistinguishable from each other. I I do an exercise in one of my consumer psychology classes where we talk about visual distinction and I show a picture of the bottled water aisle at a grocery store. And the unwritten rules for bottled water is we want to express that it's it's pure and clean and refreshing. And so there's a lot of um, whites and blues in the logos and the packaging. And it's visually, it's just a wash of nothing. It's yeah. just, they all look the same, except for the Evian display, where you have this like kind of subtle pink on it. Yeah. And it stands out like anything. It just immediately grabs your attention because it's distinct in the sea of sameness. Now, I would argue that Evian is probably like, now optimal distinctiveness is what we use to describe people's motivations. But if we were to transfer that theory over to package design, I think Evian is probably in a safe distinction space that, you know, their bottles are still roughly the same shape as everybody else's. Uh, They also still use a lot of whites and blues and what they do to kind of signal clarity and purity, but they are distinct and kind of, you know, arguably maybe more fashionable as far as bottled water goes and different in a way that draws the attention and I think serves the brand very well. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Obviously, there must be lots of just logistical issues. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm thinking about you making you're making me think about well, okay, so if you have a cereal box that's you make into a hexagon, then is that going to stack on the shelf well enough? Absolutely, yeah, and I don't want to minimize that. At the same time, do you know where the term top shelf liquor came from? You heard this? I'm going to forget the name uh, now that I'm telling the story, but it was an old whiskey brand and they intentionally made their bottles too tall to fit on standard bar shelving. Ah. And they did it so that the bartenders would be forced to store it above the, the shelving. So it's on the right. top shelf there. And that made it more visually distinctive. That kind of made it easier to find and grab. It made it um, so that customers would be more likely to point to that bottle in particular and ask for that. Clever. This then became a way of signaling that this was of higher quality and, and distinctive. So, uh, yeah, if you if you started making your, your cereals hexagon-shaped boxes, that would create all kinds of hassles. Um, at the same time, sometimes those hassles force 
change on an industry in a way that benefits your brand as well. I think that's a really interesting point. And there was, it just goes to show how clever people are, don't they? When they I think they you mean clever I am. I was the one who told you that story. It makes you realize how clever I am. Go ahead. What were you saying? What I was going to say was the other thing I thought for Fernando's uh, benefit is, again, going back to the, the beginning of what you spoke about, Ryan, which is where are the the challenge I would be giving your clients would be where are the other target audiences? So rather than just copying everybody, what other target audiences can we go for? And people have heard me say this 50 million times, so I'm going to say it 50 million and one times. Getting under the skin of going, well, what's actually driving the behavior to select that good? Is it, as Ryan was just saying with Evian, is it that the, this one has got a slightly pink logo? Is it, as Ryan was in fact just saying about the, is it because it's not on the top shelf? It's now on the, you know, the decking behind where they're serving the, the, the whiskey. What are those subconscious reasons that people are actually choosing that product? I think the only other thing, Fernando, I would say is make sure you send this message uh, this podcast to your clients and get them to start to listen uh, because maybe this starts to provoke some thoughts in their minds of entering new marketplaces that they that they haven't got into before. I think that's a great summary. Your decisions, including design decisions, should be driven by creating value for a group of customers. Right? And to that extent, what your competition is doing only matters to the extent that you are creating value better than they are for some specific group of people as opposed to trying to to copy them and, and match them so ryan practically let's get a uh, practical hats on again uh if you were talking to fernando now what would you tell him that you need to do he needs to do so uh, fernando's problem is interesting and in that it's really about encouraging his clients to think in a different way. So we talked a lot about theory, um, about how customers evaluate things, about the theories are behind how clients evaluate things. But he's really got a persuasion task ahead of him. That's the problem. I would try starting by reframing the problem in terms of the target customer and what they want, because ultimately that should be what drives the decision. So do your customers, do your clients have a, a real good idea of who their target customer is? Um, if they do, then that's your touchstone. All the decisions you make, you keep going back to that. Anytime they raise an, an issue about, well, this is what the competition does, you go back to the customer and you say, but this is what your customer wants. If they don't, then you need to start there. So encourage them to, to get a better idea, a better handle on who that customer is, what's really driving the decisions of that group of people, and then can we optimize around that? So that's first, be guided by your, your target customer. Second, I would um, maybe try to articulate to your clients that there is this optimal distinctiveness that brands can have. And so as we define what constitutes the kind of the unwritten rules of the category or of the set, then what our goal should be should be to find those areas of distinctiveness. We need to be different from our uh, competition. Otherwise, there's not going to be any reason to choose us. So where should we be the same and where should we be different? In marketing classes, we'll sometimes talk about positioning in terms of points of parity and points of differentiation. You know, you can talk about product design in the same way. So what are the points of parity? What are the things that are going to be the same? 
you know, maybe it is appropriate in this category to, to use a lot of the similar color just because of the symbolic meaning of that color. All right, that's our point of parity. Now, what's our point of differentiation? How are we going to distinguish ourselves given that backdrop? Um, if we can reframe the problem, Fernando, to being a, encouraging your clients to think about where and how can we be different? Because that's our competitive advantage. I think you'll hopefully be in a better place to convince them as opposed to when they come to you scared and say, we need to do something like this. Dig into, well, what does like this mean? We don't want to do exactly that, right? Well, no, of course not. Not, not exactly that. Um, then you say, great. So what needs to be similar, right? What's our points of parity? And then now that we've got that, all right, well, here's the areas where we can be different and really set ourselves apart. Yeah, no, that really good advice. Uh, let, let me try and throw uh, a couple of things in that may help as well, uh, Fernando. First of all, I, I go back to what Ryan said about risk aversion. You need to recognize that's happening. And therefore, the answer to risk aversion is doing something small, doing a test, getting the, your clients to think about things from that different perspective but then not trying to change the whole of their product lines all at once. Encourage them to try some, do some trials of it in you know one particular store or something like that. Second thing I would reinforce is what Ryan was saying about the education. We have to do this a lot. We have to educate our, our clients at the beginning about the different aspects of a customer experience. So not just being rational but also being emotional and subconscious and psychological you do have to bring people with you so getting in place some subtle education clearly you shouldn't turn around to your client and say uh, hey you need to go on some education and here's a education tool for you <laughs> here's a book called marketing for dummies you should read yeah. this because you're <laughs> a dummy right. good point well made but turning around and going i listened to this really interesting podcast the other day and uh, they were talking about this and it made me think of you, have a listen, is good, or articles or whatever it, it may be. The third thing I've found that is interesting when I've been doing this, and I've been doing this for 20 odd years now, from a consultancy perspective, if you like, is asking customers questions that you know they 90% certain they won't have the answer to, okay? Not in an aggressive way, clearly, but some of the questions we ask are things like, well, what's the experience that you're trying to deliver? What emotions are you trying to evoke? What really drives value in your organization? The, the key for me is they're really simple questions, yeah? But most people don't have an answer to them, okay? It goes back to that thing about it's really easy to make things complicated, but actually, it's the simplification of those things and the practical way, the example of my car, for instance, that we talk about with the silver grill or the black grill, giving them practical examples where they can see that theory playing out in reality, I think, is key. And the last thing I would say, and perhaps I, this should have been the first thing, is get them to undertake some research and get them to undertake some research on, again, some of the subconscious things of what's really driving value. So again, you know, we would do something like an emotional signature piece of research where you're trying to get under the skin of, it's not just that I 
you know, I like my bottles to be in a one litre size and have a, a cap on them and blah, 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 according, you know, going along with Ryan's theme. But I also think that subconsciously it's the bit of red that stands out in um, the Avion bottle that makes attracts me to it or the shape of a Perrier bottle or something like that that attracts me to it. So getting them to do some type of research. So I hope all those things help. If you need some help, if you're in a pickle, either contact us on LinkedIn. Both Ryan and I are are on LinkedIn, so just search for us. Write to us at Beyond Philosophy, which is at contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. Or go to our website, beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle, beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle. And we'll be glad to hear from you. And we'll be glad to try to deal with your pickle and give you some theory and some practical advice on what to do. So we look forward to talking to you next week on the show. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. Intuitive Customer.